Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Two days ago, I turned in the final grades for my classes, marking the end of one of the strangest and rewarding semesters of my teaching career so far. I will miss all of my students dearly, and I wish them all much success through the remainder of their time at the university. After today's episode, I'm going to shift the structure of the episodes a little bit. If you've listened to all the other episodes, then after today, you'll have a pretty good idea of what the class content includes and a solid understanding of basic forensic psychology. Moving forward, I want to dive deeper into cases to explore the subtle psychological influences, drawing on concepts presented in past episodes. Today will be a nice transition episode into that format. Um, I intend on taking a closer look at a case that highlights a complexity of the topic. So today I'll be talking about repressed memories, and I'll be discussing some sensitive issues, including rape and sexual assault. So if that is something that is triggering for you um, or problematic in any way, then you may want to skip this episode. Repressed memories is a really difficult topic to talk about without sounding kind of like a terrible person. In most cases, it's almost impossible to know definitively what the real truth is. And oftentimes, when this topic is discussed in the literature or even by professionals, it can come across as victim blaming and shaming. I don't want to do that at all. I think there's a fair amount of background into this topic that will set the scene, but I don't want you to take away that repressed memories are a total fabrication and don't exist for anyone, because that's not true. I'll touch on a couple cases where we absolutely know for a fact that the memories were fabricated or implanted in some way. We'll also talk about a case that divides opinions. You may come to a different conclusion than I have at the end about that case, and that's that's okay. This topic is controversial, to say the least, but I'll try to keep the discussion as rooted in fact and empirical evidence as I can. And as always, when I present an opinion or unsubstantiated claim, I'll let you know. Let's start with the basic terms. So false memories can be memories where something's wrong with the way the memory was encoded or the way that it was stored. They can also be imagined or fabricated. Oftentimes, false memories are tricky and convincing because they include real events that really happened to you. Those real memories are then confused or mixed up in some way. If you're a Doctor Who fan, like me, it would be like you're the Doctor and you're traveling through space and time, and timelines often get jumbled in that show. Something that happened 10 years ago could get confused with something that happened today if they both quote-unquote, happened within the last 10 minutes. If you don't watch the show and that doesn't make any sense to you, um, let's do another example. Think of a time you told a great story. You're telling it as if it happened to you, with you as the protagonist. Then your friend goes, hey, I told you that story. It happens to me all the time. I hear a great story, I imagine it happening to me, then I remember it happening to me. I was told I had an active imagination as a kid. Your brain can easily mix together memories from different points in time or originate even from dreams or imagined experiences. Have you ever swore someone told you something but it turned out that they only told you in a dream? Just me. 
There are many opportunities for our brains to make errors, and most of the time they involve the errors in the source memory itself. Confabulation is another term I'd like to define. This is when you have a fantasy or imagined situation that gets encoded into your memory as a factual account. These can be based on facts, making them more convincing, or completely made up. This is really common. Most people make up stories or imagine hypothetical conversations all the time. It's easier than you might think to confuse fantasy with reality. Research looking into just how easy it is to confabulate memories showed that when put in certain situations, people will actually rationalize their way out of it, even by making up memories that don't exist. One particular study showed participants pictures of people and asked them to choose the most attractive face from the group. You'd think that you would remember the face you chose, right? Well, when participants were shown a card they didn't choose and asked why they chose that person as the most attractive one, most of them didn't immediately notice that that's not the one they chose. They came up with sometimes very elaborate explanations about why they picked that picture. Confabulation might also be something we do at work. If you're like me and embody the fake it till you make it mantra, you probably confabulate a lot. Eyewitnesses are also particularly vulnerable to confabulate, especially when being encouraged. A source memory is one that is accurate and detailed, but the source is just misidentified. An example could be telling a story you claim happened to your friend when in fact you saw it in a movie or read about it in a book. You're confusing the source of that memory. It can also be referred to as memory misattribution or source amnesia. Those who support the theory of repressed and recovered memories of traumatic experiences believe extreme trauma can lead to amnesia surrounding these memories causing them to be inaccessible to our conscious mind. The cause of that amnesia has been hypothesized as being either due to repression or dissociation. Repression is a psychological defense mechanism that we use to temporarily forget traumatic experiences, thoughts, or impulses. It's a way of avoiding the anxiety that goes along with reliving that experience. The memories are believed to be repressed and stored in the unconscious mind rather than completely being forgotten, which makes them retrievable, hypothetically. Dissociation, on the other hand, is a little bit more extreme where traumatic memories can be split off altogether from the conscious awareness, not just buried in the unconscious mind. As I mentioned before, there are many examples where experts manipulate people in an effort to provide evidence to support their theories and hypotheses about repressed memories and the ability to recover them. In 1987, the McMartin Preschool came under much scrutiny when one parent claimed her son was sexually abused by a staff member. The media latched on to this claim, dragging the school through the mud. The district attorney assigned to the case was adamant that there was photographic evidence of child pornography, though no photos were ever found. The whole case was built on interviews conducted at the Children's Institute International at the University of California, Los Angeles. One of the doctors working there 
William E. Gordon testified to the fact that photographs did exist and proved evidence of abuse. He was considered an expert and had testified in hundreds of trials on similar abuse topics. It was found out later that he was not a certified pediatrician, but only a professor with no formal education in psychiatry, psychiatric diagnoses, or evaluating sexual abuse. The interviews conducted that provided the foundation for the case did not produce any real evidence. They were just stories that were supposedly retrieved from some of the children. Most of what the children said, even if there was actual evidence that refuted their claims, was interpreted as evidence of abuse. As a result of these interviews, 360 children from the school were diagnosed as victims of abuse. After seven years of investigation, nothing concrete was ever produced. It's a really sad and dangerous example of confirmation bias. Sometimes people who believe themselves to be experts on a topic will only see evidence of their expertise. In this case, everything was interpreted as a sign of abuse. The expert in this case was no expert at all. But there are other instances where those trained in recognizing and treating abuse also fall into the confirmation bias trap. Patricia Burris was the victim of false memories interpreted by her therapists as true repressed memories. She had experienced severe postpartum depression for which she sought treatment. Her therapist administered drugs and hypnotherapy to her, which put her in a highly suggestible state. In this state, she recalled that she'd been part of a satanic cult, had been abused by many men, had abused her own children, had sex with John F. Kennedy, and had participated in cannibalistic acts. Now, none of this was actually true, but she believed it. Her therapists encouraged her to believe it and indulged the false memories, believing them to be genuine. Eventually, Burgess realized that she had been misled by the therapists to believe these false memories. She sued them as a result. The psychological trauma of believing she endured and perpetrated abuse sustains after the realization that it wasn't true. The problem that these cases pose is that fewer people will take repressed memory cases seriously as a consequence, especially when there are professionals who take advantage of their patients to exploit insurance payouts to justify expensive treatments. The topic of repressed memory is tainted by these people to the extent that many courts no longer hear cases where the primary source of evidence is a recovered memory. Research on repressed memories is extensive and ongoing. New information is constantly being learned about how our brains work and how memories are formed and stored. There is evidence that people can forget extreme trauma. Our understanding of how this works is constantly evolving. One way is through the disruption of our long-term memory storage process, which can take days to fully store an event. Extreme trauma can disrupt this process where memories aren't actually stored properly, and perhaps they're stored only as emotions or sensations instead of the full memory. There is evidence that supports the idea that sensory triggers can help these forgotten memories surface. People who experience extreme trauma do sometimes forget those experiences, but they can remember them later through 
sort of flashbacks that focus often on those sensations or emotions that accompanied the trauma. At the same time, it's also been shown that false memories are very easily replicable in experimental settings. It's important to see the issue from all the different sides, and I'd like you to keep in mind these research findings as we move into our next case. The next case I want to talk about is a great example of why this topic is so controversial. It divides psychological professionals and presents a multifaceted and frustrating narrative. Holly Watt for The Guardian wrote a really great piece about this case in 2017. I would like to read it for you in its entirety as it describes very eloquently the complexity of this case. The article is linked in the resources page um, on the Google Drive, which is available through the show notes, and it's called Some Days I Think I Was Molested, Others I'm Not Sure, Inside the Case of Repressed Memory. Nicole Klemper's home is filled with mementos, navy medals, a collage of photographs, a portrait of her old dog. Every wedding anniversary has been carefully celebrated, most recently with a small bronzed statue for eight years. From her bedroom window, she can see the hill where she and her husband married and can recite every moment of the day. There is a reason for this careful archive. Quote, my memory, she says, is a matter of some debate. In precise tones, Klemper, 39, explains how she came to be part of one of the most controversial cases in modern psychology. This is the first time she's talked to the media about her story. For years, she was known only as Jane Doe. When I was about four, I accused my biological mother of sexually molesting me, Klemper says, sitting in the living room of her peaceful, split-level home in the east of San Diego. She and my father were in the process of getting a divorce. As part of the custody evaluation, a forensic evaluation was done. Her parents' marriage had broken down within months of her birth, but the divorce had been brutal and long, with the battle for custody sprawling over years. In 1984, to create evidence for court hearings, a psychiatrist called David Corwin filmed interviews with Klemper. In the video, Klemper, by then six, is playing with her crayons. Her dark, curly hair is held back by a pink ribbon, and her smile is missing a front tooth. Behind her are shelves of heavy legal textbooks. She looks into the video camera occasionally, articulate for a small child. It is only the words that are shocking, a small girl describing how her mother has sexually abused her. As a result, Klemper's mother lost custody of her daughter. Klemper went to live with her father and stepmother. Then, when she was 12, Klemper's father had a stroke and had to move to a convalescent home. Quote, At that point, since I didn't have any family members to step in and take custody of me, I lived in several different state-run or private living situations, Klemper says. In fact, she was left with barely any family at all. Her mother had disappeared from her life, and she was not close to her half-brother. In one year, she moved eight times, ending up in an informal foster home with other kids. There was one constant in the chaos, Corwin. With the ascent of Klemper and her father, Corwin was using the video of Klemper as part of his training of fellow psychiatrists. 
He believed this recording was an unusually clear and effective illustration of a child explaining abuse. As a result, Corwin contacted Klemper occasionally to ensure that she still consented to his use of the recordings. But over the decades, Klemper forgot what was actually on the videos. As time went by, she couldn't remember any more why she didn't see her mother. And by the age of 16, Klemper knew the videos existed and that they were being used as training aids, but no longer remembered what they contained. Around the time that her father died, four years after his stroke, contact with her mother was reestablished at the suggestion of Klemper's then foster mother. Quote, At that time, I didn't remember any more why I had been taken from my biological mother's custody, Klemper says. And as you can imagine, having a parent pass away at 16, anyone would be looking for something to grab hold of. But her mother's erratic behavior sparked questions, and Klemper decided she had to see the videos. She contacted Corwin and asked if she could watch them. The request created an ethical dilemma for Corwin. It seemed wrong to withhold the videos from Klemper, but he couldn't just send them to the by now 17-year-old and hope for the best. Eventually, they agreed that they should watch the videos together when he was next in California. Meticulous as always, Corwin filmed Klemper consenting to watch the videos. On the video, they discuss the situation and suddenly Klemper appears to remember the abuse. In a few seconds, she goes from truculent teenager to broken child. There are differences between her description at 6 and her recall at 17. When she was six, she had referred to repeated assaults. In the later video, she recalls only one episode. At 17, she's less confident that it was deliberate abuse. Quote, she was bathing me, and I only remember one instance, and she hurt me. She put her fingers too far where she shouldn't have, and she hurt me. She remembers on the video. Today, Klemper still looks bewildered at the surge of memories that overtook her so abruptly. All of a sudden, I'm like, no, I do remember, Klemper says now, and there is this moment of, where did that come from? It's almost like being slapped in the face when you're not expecting it. Accidentally creating a video of someone apparently recalling sexual abuse was unprecedented. Once again, Klemper granted Corwin permission to use her story, and he published an academic article carefully shielding his subject behind the pseudonym Jane Doe. As Corwin wrote in his 1997 paper, quote, this case is unusual and perhaps unique in documentation. Both the child's disclosure at age six and the young woman's sudden recall of the abuse at age 17, after several years of reported inability to recall the experience are preserved on video. Critically, it is almost impossible to test for this sort of memory recall. For obvious ethical reasons, traumatic amnesia cannot be produced in controlled studies with human beings, Corwin noted. We cannot experiment on humans by raping, torturing, or bombarding them to verify in a laboratory setting that some percentage of human subjects will or will not develop amnesia. The paper's publication in 1997 caused significant controversy in the world of psychiatry, upsetting long-held views. For most of the decade, a debate had raged between psychologists, therapists, and psychiatrists over the existence of repressed memories. 
Known as the Memory Wars of the 1990s, the dispute was sparked in part by the case of an American man called George Franklin, who was accused by his daughter, Eileen Franklin Lipsker, of the rape and murder of an eight-year-old girl. Franklin Lipsker's childhood friend, Susan Nason, had been killed in 1969, and 20 years later, in 1989, she claimed to recover memories of her father's alleged crime. Despite having no recall of this for two decades, she insisted she was reminded of the killing when she looked at her own young daughter. Franklin was the first man to be jailed on the basis of a recovered memory, despite always insisting he was innocent. He was sentenced to life in jail in 1990, with the judge condemning the former firefighter as, quote, wicked and depraved. There followed a number of high-profile cases that seemed to support those psychiatrists who believed it was possible for children to recover memories of abuse years later. Others, however, including Professor Elizabeth Loftus, who testified on Franklin's behalf, argued that there was no scientific evidence to support these quote-unquote memories. In 1996, amid doubts over his daughter's testimony, Franklin was exonerated. Now, a year later, along came Corwin with what seemed to be video evidence supporting the existence of repressed memories. For Klemper, the second interview with Corwin had been an attempt to put the past behind her. She cut off contact with her mother and signed up for the U.S. Navy. She rose rapidly to become a helicopter pilot, a job that demanded extensive technical skills. Quote, the Navy provided me with a structure I desperately needed, she says, and because I had a very, very difficult job to do, and because that job required that I compartmentalize these things that had happened to me, those were the times that I was given respite from the anger. She operated from the naval base on Coronado Island, just off San Diego, and flew her helicopter for hundreds of hours over the course of her career. She was part of counter-narcotics force off South America and the search and rescue efforts after Hurricane Katrina, hovering over the flooded houses of New Orleans during the desperate hunt for survivors. Quote, in one house, a little girl wouldn't leave without her cat, she remembers. We took the cat. She took pride in her job. Quote, the Navy was exciting. It gave me an identity when I was sorely lacking one. It was a good scaffold for rebuilding my life. But one day, she started hearing rumors of an investigation into her past. Inexplicably, a private investigator had turned up on the doorsteps of old friends. Quote, as he left, he said, oh, tell Nicole that she needs to put air in her left front tire. My car was parked up front, so he knew which car was mine. It was a sickening feeling to know there was someone watching. A woman approached Klemper's half-brother, stepmother, and biological mother, asking for details about Klemper's life. The same woman had apparently approached Klemper's foster mother, claiming to be Corwin's boss. Thinking that she was talking to someone Klemper knew and trusted, her foster mother spoke for several hours about Klemper's teenage years, saying that she sneaked out to meet boys and drink alcohol. Klemper's biological mother, meanwhile, apparently told the woman that when she had tried to leave her husband, he had threatened her, saying that he would take Jane away from her and destroy her life. She also said that Klemper's father drank scotch in the way most people drink water. Klemper, who adored her father, insists this was simply not true. At first, 
Klemper couldn't understand why anyone would be taking such an interest in her life. Then she realized it had to be something to do with Jane Doe. Sitting in her office in the University of California, Irvine, Loftus speaks with the confidence of a woman at the end of a long and distinguished career. A photograph of her with Bill Clinton sits on the bookline shelves. The only jarring note is a gun target pinned to the wall, complete with bullet holes. Now 72, Loftus studied for her first degree at UCLA and for her doctorate in psychology at Stanford. She worked her way up to a senior role at the University of Washington before moving in 2002 to Irvine. Along the way, Loftus has carried out groundbreaking research into memory. Her famous Lost in the Mall study in 1995 showed that if people were told they were lost in a shopping mall as a young child, many would subsequently remember the experience and even embroider the memory. Another study showed that telling subjects they didn't like certain foods could potentially help with obesity. Quote, or you could give them a negative memory of getting sick on an alcohol as a teenager, and then they're not as interested in that alcohol, she explains. In Loftus's mind, memory is like a Wikipedia page. Anyone can add to it or, with the right factors, rewrite it. One of her key discoveries was proving that people will recall events differently depending on how they are questioned, whether by a psychologist or a police officer. As her stature grew, Loftus's skills began being requested in court cases, including that of Franklin. By her own calculations, she's worked on 300 court cases over the past 40 years. It is a career that is both high profile and lucrative, and it has put Loftus in the spotlight the gun target on the wall comes from a time during the memory wars when she was getting so many threats, she decided she should learn to shoot. These people, the repressed memory therapists, some of them, and the patients that they persuaded, they fight dirty, she says. But through it all, she's remained unconvinced by the science behind repressed memories. There's no credible evidence for it, she says firmly. Someday we may be able to find it, but... That you take this chunk of traumatic feelings and wall it off, and it resides there in some pristine form? It leaks and makes you do bad things and have symptoms and you need to peel away this layer of repression? No. In 1993, the British Psychological Society convened a team to consider whether some psychologists might be accidentally implanting false memories of child sexual abuse in their clients. The following year, Loftus published one of her best-known books, The Myth of Repressed Memory. Once she started looking at Klemper's case more closely, she became convinced that her mother had been falsely accused. Quote, I just thought this was very fishy. She says, I was able to find the identity of Jane Doe, and once I could find the name, I could get into the divorce file and find the records that began to convince me this mother was innocent. It was tragic. Loftus came across details that Corwin had not included in his paper and concluded that Klemper's mother was the innocent victim, financially outgunned by the older and more sophisticated father. Quote, they were separated from the time she was eight months old, Loftus says. They fought and fought until the sex abuse case got solidified and the mother lost the fight. Loftus hypothesized that someone else had put the thoughts of abuse into Klemper's mind. 
Loftus made contact with Klemper's mother, who insisted she was innocent. She was so grateful that someone finally believed her, Loftus says now. I spoke to Klemper's mother on the telephone, and she said she was still grateful for Loftus's assistance and that her life had been destroyed by the allegations of sexual abuse, which she says are false. Quote, it was a nightmare that went on for a long time. It completely destroyed me. My kids are everything to me, and they always came first. But defending Klemper's mother was not Loftus's only motivation. She was also concerned about Corwin's use of the videos. Quote, he was showing her videotapes publicly. He wrote a big article in which he had extensive excerpts. Loftus believed it was vital to subject Corwin's thesis to scientific scrutiny. Quote, I felt that the Jane Doe case was doing harm. It was being used and introduced in other cases as proof that repressed memories were real, and used against other people that I would bet my house were innocent. Unfortunately, to prove Corwin wrong, Loftus had to shine further light on Klemper's past. As the psychologist continued to dig, Corwin worked out who was behind the investigation. Horrified by the intrusion, in 1998, Klemper tried to bring it to a halt. Quote, I asked her to stop, Klemper says. She didn't stop. At that time, Elizabeth Loftus was at the University of Washington. I went to the University of Washington, the Ethical Use of Human Subjects Committee, and I asked them to review what she had done. The University of Washington put Loftus under investigation, but she was cleared of any wrongdoing. She left the university but continued to investigate the case. In 2002, now at Irvine, she published an article. Klemper remembers vividly the day Loftus published her article concluding it was likely that Jane Doe had never been sexually abused. Quote, I can only describe it as you're standing in your hometown where people definitely know you and this giant hand comes down and grabs you by the back of the neck, rips all your clothes off, and then puts you right back down completely naked for everyone you know and care about to stare at you, parts of you that you don't want anyone to see. Although Loftus had not directly named her, Klemper believed it was possible to identify her through the article. News organizations take particular care when reporting on the victims of sexual abuse to ensure that they cannot be identified by jigsaw identification, which is when pieces of information fit together to identify a victim. Loftus, by contrast, set out all the steps she had taken to ascertain Jane Doe's identity, and included several details about the family. Though Loftus still maintains it was not possible to identify Jane Doe, Klemper says, it felt like the most incredible invasion. I lost the ability to trust people. I'm still trying to get that back completely. It was like someone threw a brick through the front of my life and it shattered around me. In approaching her biological mother, stepmother, and foster mother, Klemper felt that Loftus had targeted the three women in her life who should have been protecting her. Furious, she approached the American Psychological Association, but Loftus has resigned from the organization, so there was no recourse there. Klemper decided to sue. The suit went through two rounds of court. Several of her claims were struck out, but it was decided that the court could examine the argument that Loftus had misrepresented herself when talking to Klemper's foster mother. Loftus insists 
that she did not misrepresent herself, but the two sides ended up settling, with Loftus's insurance making a small payout. However, under California's anti-slap laws, or strategic lawsuit against public participation to stop groundless lawsuits, and because several of her claims were struck out, Klemper was hit with $250,000 in legal costs. Today, Loftus says she regrets the financial crisis that engulfed Klemper. Quote, I had a phone conversation when I tried to warn her. She may not remember that part of the conversation. The costs were unpayable for Klemper, and her Navy advisors recommended that she declare bankruptcy. That meant leaving the Navy. Once again, Klemper found her life collapsing. Even now, two decades later, Corwin is horrified by the sequence of events unleashed by his report into the Jane Doe case. Speaking from the University of Utah, where he now works, Corwin says he was extremely careful only to report the bare facts. I wasn't an extremist in the memory wars, he said. I'm a forensic child psychiatrist, and I have seen all kinds of different cases. We never used the words repressed memory. We tried to describe the phenomenon objectively without theoretical implications. Before publishing the paper and with Klemper's consent, he invited people from across the spectrum to review the videos, including people who had a lot of skepticism about whether this was even possible. We didn't attempt to slant it. We thought it was useful at the time just to illustrate that this in fact happened. He always recognized the conflict in treating a six-year-old as evidence, but points out that from Sigmund Freud onwards, psychiatry has depended on case reports. Quote, you couldn't plan it. It just happened, Corin says. The main concern here is what does this mean for science? What does it mean for publication? Case reports have been a cornerstone of the evolution of medical and psychiatric knowledge and development. He's worried that what happened to Klemper has affected their use. Quote, from the scientist's professional perspective, there are probably some who are more wary of publishing case reports because of fear. He says he remains confused by Loftus's actions. Quote, she phoned me to tell me it was about to be published, and by then it was too late to do anything, he says carefully. Then I read it, and in my view, there were many, many inaccuracies. He remains close to Klemper, speaking to her regularly. For her part, she's now able to laugh at the psychiatrist's guilt. Quote, I've said to him, in all seriousness, Dave, you've got to let it go. And I don't know if he can. She believes it was the detail of Corwin's science and the publicity it received that motivated Loftus, that if she couldn't question the science, she had to throw doubt over his subject. In my opinion, she did it because she was starting to get questions about the Jane Doe case when she was testifying as an expert witness, and it was starting to be problematic for her, Klemper says. I think it was affecting her livelihood. Meanwhile, Klemper was bankrupt and unemployed. The Navy, with its sense of belonging and achievement, was gone. I was angry, she says. I spent a number of years being angry. Salvation came from an unexpected direction. Despite the trauma, Klemper had been inspired by her interaction with the psychiatrist. What I remembered of David Corwin was that he was somebody who just wanted to hear what I had to say. Because in a divorce situation, both parents have their own agenda. But I distinctly remember, even at five years old, 
But Dave Corwin was only interested in what I had to say. I wanted to do what he did. So Klemper started again. She trained as a psychologist and today works at a nonprofit healthcare center in Linda Vista, San Diego. She's routinely the first contact children ever have with mental health services. Quote, it's like someone took a snow globe and shook it up and now their world is in free fall. So to be able to stand with them until everything settles down and then watch them go back to the world, not as victims, but as survivors, to be able to watch them go back to the business of being a seven-year-old or a 17-year-old, that is what makes it worthwhile to me. Today, Klemper is glad she returned to Corwin. Quote, if I hadn't gone back and watched those videos at 17, it did, in the end, bring the pieces of my life together in a way that nothing else could have. I didn't appreciate it for years. But she's no longer confident about what happened all those years ago. Quote, there are days when I think I was molested by my biological mother, and there are days I am fairly convinced it didn't happen. It is a very difficult way to live. More days, I'm convinced it is true. It feels like someone just took an eraser, sort of, and smudged my life. Though she's now content living with her husband in Southern California, Klemper retains a sense of outrage over what she feels was Loftus's intrusion into her privacy. She empathizes with rape victims who have their memories questioned on the witness stand. She's been moved by the recent Bill Cosby case in which the entertainer was accused of aggravated indecent assault. Dozens of women have come forward to speak about memories of his attacks, which Cosby denies, but almost all are time barred by the statute of limitations. Quote, I'm not sure if there is a more significant sense of outrage than that of having your own memories challenged, Klemper wrote in an early email exchange. Quote, I was indignant, and I would imagine these women feel similarly. Loftus was involved in the defense on the Cosby case, and it was partly this that inspired Klemper to speak out about her distress in the aftermath of the Jane Doe case. Quote, what are we? If we are not our life experiences, Klemper asks, if we are to believe that those memories are as fallible as some researchers want us to believe they are, what does that leave us with? What are we doing here? If you'd like to read the article or see the source, please click the third link in the resource file for episode 16, linked in the episode notes. For me, and this is back to the episode, and this is my personal opinion, I default to trust victims, especially when the allegations stem from them and are not pulled out, suggested, or initiated by a therapist or a psychologist. I have less faith when the victims themselves don't genuinely believe the memory or when it was coaxed out of them using hypnosis or any other unorthodox methods, including sodium amytal or truth serum. But if there's a genuine belief and conviction of the victim, I will believe them. I'm always open to the possibility that memories can be misattributed or maybe even fabricated, but that person who believes something bad happened to them is still hurting. They're still negatively impacted by these memories, whether they're real or not. And they have the same psychological effect either way. The best we can do is to trust people who come forward. Try not to influence them or implant information, 
and provide support the best way we can. Thank you for listening to episode 16. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so you have access to the newest episodes right when they're released. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the forensic filescaptivatefm which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find the podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N, apart from the article I read from The Guardian. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.